What's your name? David Feldman. Now, there's a lot of Feldmans who work in sports, and there's two of them who work in the Bay Area. Which David Feldman are you not? Uh, I am not the redheaded one. I'm the original one. I'm the ODF. So the one who, who you are not, what does he do? Uh, he is a sports anchor for NBC Sports Bay Area. And what do you do? I am a TV sports producer slash Major League Baseball official scorer. How many sporting events would you estimate that you attended the Oakland Coliseum before your first time working at the Oakland Coliseum? Oh, I would say probably about 1,200. Coming up on this edition of Life Around the Seams, we go behind the scenes and into the production truck of a guy who you never see, you sometimes hear, but his fingerprints are all over a lot of the sporting events you watch. How he ended up in the press box was somewhat inevitable, but also still remarkable. Again, today's guest is not the David Feldman you see on TV, but it is David Feldman. And this is Life Around the Seams. Former Major League pitcher Jim Bouton once wrote, You spend a good piece of your life gripping a baseball, and in the end, it turns out, it was the other way around all the time. Welcome to Life Around the Scenes, a podcast about baseball people who have interesting stories from between the lines, and sometimes even more interesting stories outside the lines. Here's your host, Josh Sushan. David Feldman, welcome to Life Around the Scenes, and thanks for joining me. Uh, thank you for having me. So we are on location. You want to describe where we're at? Well, we are at a neighborhood baseball slash softball park in Pleasant Hill, California. Uh, we're looking at four diamonds, typical park, but it's pretty well manicured here. And the dugouts, as we were just noticing, really sweet because they have a glove rack. I've never seen a glove rack in my life, let alone on a public park. It's unbelievable. That bat rack, it, they do a nice job here. And we've seen there's adult leagues, there's obviously kids' leagues. And uh, in a few hours, these, these uh, parks will be hopping. All right, well, then we better get to it here. So I want to start off with the early years. You just mentioned that you probably attended over 1,200 sporting events at the Coliseum. And I know that you spent almost all of that time in the bleachers. Let's start with the early years. Describe who you were around the different characters that were with you in the bleachers. Yeah, because it started with going to Oakland A's baseball games with my dad, right, my family. My dad grew up in Philadelphia, and he was a Philadelphia A's fan. Um, and then we actually, my family moved here in 1968, the same year the A's moved here. I was six months old. I think I attended my first Oakland A's game when I was two. And the first one I actually remember was a bat day in uh, 1973 with Vita Blue pitching. It did not go well. The Detroit Tigers shut us out 3 nothing. but I got a Salbando bat that I actually used through uh, playing Little League with. But eventually, as I got older into high school and started going to games on my own, and this is, think about this, I'm 13 years old, and I'm taking Bart to the games by myself or with a buddy, and my parents were fine with that. Uh, that's not happening in today's world. But we would go, and uh, we used to sit in the second deck behind the plate, and eventually, as we lost our uh, kids' discount, we moved to the bleachers for, for $4, and in high school, that's where we sat, and we ended up meeting 
these other bleacher creatures who are always there. Guys like Steve Scott, uh, Jay Didion, Mike Kelly. Um, it was unbelievable the people that you just ended up hanging out with, these characters who were there every day just like we were. Now, this is the age before social media. There's no Twitter and Facebook to organize these things. How describe the the nature of how you just came to know these people and just hung out and met up. Yeah, I think it was just being there every day. I remember sitting. I used to sit when I first started sitting in the bleachers. I would sit about halfway up in left field and then slowly kind of move my way down, and you start seeing the same people. Now, Steve Scott was this blonde-haired guy with this huge voice who would drink maybe six or seven beers a game. And he was actually written about in a book called Baseball Confidential where a writer had gone around and told all these like untold stories of baseball, and he asked Kirk Gibson, the, the writer did, you know, what's the toughest place to play? And he said the Oakland Coliseum, because there's this one guy in left field with this loud voice, and he's always yelling, what's the matter with Gibson? And everybody answers, he's a bum. And they do it constantly. Well, that was the guy. It was, this was Steve. And, and he was, so we ended up kind of hanging out with him, and then these other people who were just there every day. And you're talking baseball, and you're talking a little bit of life, Steve had a little different life than most of us, um, but it was fun. Was Steve me, the ringleader, probably? Yeah, as far as the cheers and the yelling and the heckling, definitely. Um, he, that's, that was his focus. His focus was drinking the beer and yelling at the players. And we loved it when the players would re- react to us because that was the best. Like, there were some guys who were just stone-faced, right? They'd never look at you, the whole thing, and we'd just destroy them. And there's other guys, and I'll always forget this, Chet Lemon, who at the time was an outfielder for the White Sox. Uh, somebody sitting next to us held up two lemons with, like, they drew faces on it and said, hey, Chet, hey, Chet. And he turns around and he goes, I got your family up here. And Chet just bent over laughing. And, like, now he's our favorite. Right. So other guys like that who would react to us, we just love those guys. You mentioned the names Jay and Mike. And in one of my earlier podcasts that I had uh, with this uh, ball hawking um, expert, uh, Zach Hample, we talked about my time in the Coliseum and going to games, and we talked a little bit about Jay and Mike. Describe in your words what those two were like. Uh, well, they were complete opposites as personalities-wise because Jay was a little older, always wore Baltimore Orioles cap and jacket. Uh, he had a construction business that was very successful, uh, and he had, I think, three daughters. Uh, but he would be there every day uh, as soon as batting practice started to catch home run balls, and that was his focus. Where Mike was more of a kind of a lazy, not lazy, but kind of a stoner kid, I think you would call him, uh, with the long hair and extremely good athlete, great athlete, probably could do anything. Uh, you I know. always thought of him as the modern day Kelly um, yeah. Kelly Leak Kelly Leak from yeah. from Bad News Bears. Hundred percent. Yeah, if he had totally put his focus into actually being a baseball player, uh, he could have been a professional baseball player or a professional athlete of some sort. But his thing was having a good time and. Catching home runs. And these guys, with starting in batting practice, uh, as you talked about in the earlier podcast, they would fly down the rails. And, I don't know uh, if I've still totally explained how they would fly down the rails. So there are steps. There was, what, about 20 steps that you would have to go down from the bleachers down to the ground level. And they would literally fly down just on their gloves. Their glove, their feet would never touch any of the steps. No. No, and there's, there's a gap between the, the fence and the bleachers of about maybe 10 feet or so. Um, so they would slide down on their glove and get down there and then be able to catch the ball on the fly. How they were able to track the ball 
behind the fence. I still don't know. But they had this, this, this gift of doing it. And the other thing is if a ball was hit above us, they were pretty smart about not flying down but staying where they were because the ball would literally bounce back down to them because people had terrible hands in the bleachers. How would you describe the like their level of fame in the bleachers, those two? Well, at that time, because we were in left field, and uh, everybody knew who those two guys were because they got almost every ball. Um, there were some other guys. There was a guy in right field. Uh, we didn't like right field back then. We didn't, we didn't care about them. Uh, and there was every once in a while there would be somebody else who thought they were going to get involved. They were going to try and catch the balls. And these guys would just laugh at them because they would be late getting down for one, and they couldn't track the ball once they got down there. Where Jay and, and Mike are catching everything. It was, I think, if you were a regular at the Coliseum in the late '80s, early '90s, uh, you knew who these two guys were, and the players knew who they were. Dave Henderson gave them a nickname, right? He gave them the nickname, the Flyboys. And I found this out later when I started actually working and being around batting practice. They would hit bombs, and they would, they would just yell, watch those boys fly. Watch the fly boys go. I mean, they would watch them because they were amazed with what these, these guys would do. Um, Dave Parker, when he was with the A's, he came out once. He was trying to figure it out. It, it, was, it was awesome. Well, I'm definitely one of those who try to figure it out and one of those who would go to games. Now, I didn't go as often as you do. We've discussed this, but for the audience, we probably sat right next to each other or very close to one another. We've pieced this together, although if we had a conversation, it was not more than a minute or so. It was probably, get out of here, kid. <laughs> exactly. And so I was probably four to five years younger than, than you and, and Mike, and obviously Jay was way older than me. But I remember, like, in my high school, like, practicing, trying to trying to learn this method. And then also, it would be really frustrating because Jay and Mike would get so many balls, and they had the best section. It was the second bleacher out of the five, clo- second closest to the foul pole. So we would go to section three or section four or section five, or we'd try right field. And right field, as you mentioned, was not as much fun because McGuire and Canseco yeah. and Henderson were hitting them to right. And also, they had the batting cage that had in right center so you could not go down those steps so your options were really limited going to right field so it was really fun and i still got i don't know 20 something balls but over four or five years but i mean that was a homestand for those guys was was. getting 20 balls and it wasn't just batting practice then you get to the game and any home run hit to left field that didn't reach the bleachers they caught and they were really the only guys again they're in the front row they have the perfect slot to get down the stairwell uh and they would get down before anybody track it, catch it. It was it was unreal. Give me some other Okay, so that's batting practice. Tell me more about this group during games and kind of what you would do besides heckle players and get home run balls. <laughs> uh, well, we definitely had some rules you had to follow. Um, again, we were there. We were always once I got a press credential, I was always the first one in there because I would be able to save the whole seats the first second rows. But everybody got there early. Um, and then, you know, some of our rules were you can't hang signs. There were no signs hanging in front of us. That was, no. I remember one time somebody tried to hang, like, we just killed these people. Um, drumsticks, can't buy drumsticks. Drumsticks were rally killers. Okay. So the vendors would come by and people, and no, no, we just yell at people, you can't buy the drumstick. Unless the A's were getting killed. It was like eight to nothing. All right, get the damn drumstick. Uh, and then you start seeing people. I still remember there was this one lady, um, and <laughs> she loved Walt Weiss. Just loved him. She would always come to the games herself, uh, but she might have been a little off. I don't know. One day, somebody either sat too close to her or did something, and she had a big plate of nachos, and she just threw the plate of nachos at. And so forever, she was nacho lady because that's how she becomes. She was nacho lady. So there was eventually it was a group of about twelve or thirteen of us that was at almost every game, and in '88, 
the A's make the postseason. And obviously at the time there weren't bleacher season tickets. So how were we going to get postseason tickets? Um, you know, you had to be a season ticket holder or you had to, you know, have some other way to get them. Wait in line a really long time and you're still no guarantee of getting those seats that you guys are always in. Exactly. So we actually wrote a letter to Wally Haas. Who's the we? Who actually wrote it? Uh, I believe we had a, because one of our people in the bleachers, Steve Heinerman, was a San Jose State professor, uh, communications professor. Uh, I believe he actually wrote it, um, and we all signed it, and basically just saying, hey, we come to every game, uh, but we don't have season tickets because bleachers don't have it. We'd love to know if there's any way we can get postseason tickets. And who'd you write this letter? We wrote it to, um, to Wally Haas, the owner of the A's, and I think we ended up sending it to his son, Wally Haas Jr., is who ended up because he was more the president at that time. Um, and that's who we sent it to. And this is, again, 1988. There's no cell phones. There's no email. There's none of this. We just mailed it off. And probably about mid-September, I think we sent it off. Never heard anything back. And now it's a week before the ALCS is going to start with the A's in Boston. And I get a call at home. And uh, I answer the phone, and, and it says, this is the Oakland A's ticket office. We have 13 sets of bleacher uh, postseason tickets waiting for you. Wow. What? Are you kidding me? And so I go down there, and sure enough, there's 13 sets of tickets for us uh, in the bleachers. Now, this first year in 88, we were not in the front row. Uh, we were, like, maybe in row 10, but in our section. Uh, still close enough for Jay and Mike to get down the thing, to get the home run balls in game three of that series, um, and to, to battle for the McGuire home run uh, in game three of the uh, World Series. Uh, the next year, we did it again. They supplied us with the tickets again. 90, we got our seats, front row, left field bleachers. 92, front row, left field bleachers. I mean, this is the ownership group of the A's was unbelievable, taking care of us that way. That's one of my favorite stories when it comes to front offices just relating to fans and realizing that not every fan fits into this box. Yeah. That you guys were season ticket holders, even if you didn't have the title, and finding a way to do that. And, and I think that speaks volumes to the Haas family and about the culture that they created. Yeah, and it, to me, it still amazes me that the letter ever got to somebody who could do something with it. Because, again, because at that time, everything was done by snail mail, right? There was no other option. So in all the groups of letters, which I'm sure they get hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, this found its way to the right person, whether it was Wally Haas himself or somebody else, and they took care of it. It was really special. You mentioned the home run balls in Game 3 of the American League Championship Series. I think the A's hit four home runs in that game. Three went to left field, one went to right field. Did Mike and Jay get all three? I think they did, if I remember right, because I remember them holding the balls. I still have that vividly in my mind, and so, I, yeah, I think they did. And then how close did they come to the McGuire home run? Yeah, that's an interesting one. I don't think they got that close to it. And uh, I think for most of us, when McGuire hit it, we were so excited that I really wasn't paying attention to Jay and Mike at the time. So that's one of the other things that I find interesting about home run balls from that era. Because to me, it was, let's get a ball during batting practice that we can either play catch with or we can get an autograph with. And then once the game came, yeah, you'd like to get a home run ball. But really, you were just excited that your team was doing well. And it wasn't like, oh, this is a historical baseball where I might be able to sell it. It was just, let's celebrate. Our team just did something positive. Yeah, 100%. And we're more excited about that. Why those guys, Jay and Mike, their total focus was on the ball. They wanted the A's to win. They were A's fans. But... They were not quite live and die like the rest of us were out there. So you mentioned Jay has a construction business. You mentioned that someone uh, worked as a professor at San Jose State. What were some of the other occupations or backgrounds of some of the people that you hung out with? Well, we had uh, some people who worked in social work in Oakland. And then she ended up, Wendy, 
So ended up bringing her, I believe it's her girlfriend. We're still never quite sure. But who never seen baseball. But she came to the games. She was a doctor or a physician. So, she, of course, her name was Doc because right. that's what she has to be. Um, and she just she took to baseball, and she just loved it. And she learned it sitting in the bleachers, sitting with us, watching these games. Um, so she was, she was great because it was like watching baseball through a newborn's eyes. Things that would happen on the field, and her eyes would just look in wonder. I remember one time somebody got thrown out trying to stretch a triple. And her reaction was, well, he was safe until he was out. <laughs> Which is the perfect explanation. <laughs> okay, that makes sense. Um, you know, my parents were out there. Uh, my sister's ex-boyfriend used to sit with us. Um, another lady who worked at University of California. It was a very eclectic group of people, obviously, from different forms of life who just came together over this one bond. And I still remember that we had this one picture where it's taking it's taken from down on the field looking up at us. So it looks like this is Ricky Henderson's view of us. And we're all sitting there, we're all waving, and it's just an unbelievable shot, and I, I treasure it. Who took the photo? Did Ricky? I, the story would be way one. better if Ricky did. You know, for story purposes, yeah, it was it Ricky. <laughs> Ricky, take the picture. Uh, no, i, I got to believe there was a security guard, Larry Ball, who was... I remember uh, security guard named Larry. And Larry was the scariest-looking dude, right? He was a big African-American who... Uh, in those days, the A's security wore these dark green uniforms, all green, and he looked scary. But and he loved us, hated everybody else. Uh, and Larry would always take our picture. You know who else was out there? Uh, Gary Radnich. Really? His, not, not him. Okay. But his assistant, uh, Kevin the Bodyguard, who he's mentioned all these years. Kevin used to sit out there with us, uh, and he was a regular. Um, yeah, it was, it was an interesting group. Okay, so during this time when you're around these people, what else is going on in your life? What are you thinking that you're going to do, like, for money, for, 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 for work? Uh, yeah, so basically at this point now I'm out of college um, or a couple years in college, and I was working in radio, and I wanted to do something. I'd love to do something in sports, but I really wasn't sure. I, th- I wanted to work in radio. I had different jobs at different radio stations. Um, the best thing I ever did when I got my first job at this radio station in San Rafael. Um, I was doing the traffic and continuity, which is basically commercial logs. Um, but they didn't have a sports department or anything. But I took their letterhead and sent it to all the, to the all the teams to get credentials for all the games, which I still can't believe I did this. And I can't believe I pulled this off. I went to the World Series on a credential. I mean, I went to every game of the 89 World Series on a credential from a station that I didn't really do anything for. <laughs> Um, but I was able to do this, and I went to, uh, obviously, A's games down the bleachers, but I went to Warrior games. I went to Giant games. I went to uh, – I didn't really go to Niner games yet. But going to Warrior games, I started to meet people. And I met these people who were stringers. What, what do they do? What's a stringer? It's a stringer. Uh, and they would get sound, locker room sound, interview sound bites after Warrior games, and they would send us something called the NBA Hotline which was something you would, again, way pre-internet, uh, radio stations would call into this, and they would be able to get sound bites from these, these basketball games. And so I started seeing there were new jobs. The Associated Press had a job called a, um, besides a writer, there was someone who used to have to call in the box score. And I got it hooked up calling in box scores. So I was starting to do these little things in media just by hanging around and being there and people seeing me and saying, well, he seems like he won't screw it up. Let's give him a chance. When did you first meet Greg Papa? So this was 1990. It was during the uh, 
NLCS. I was actually training at a uh, radio station, a news station. Uh, but the A's had just clinched. They just swept the Red Sox. And game six of the NLCS was going on, Reds and Pirates. And I didn't want to go to training that night. All my friends were going to this bar, and they were going to watch the game. So I ended up walking from the Barcadero down to Green Sports Bar through the Broadway Tunnel. I've never done this walk before in my life. Um, but too stupid to know how to take the bus. That is a long tunnel. <laughs> it's a long tunnel. and uh, Not too many humans walk through the Broadway Tunnel. No, it was just stupid. But I was too, again, too stupid to know how to take the bus and, and too broke to take a cab. Um, but I ended up getting to the bar, and I'm sitting there. I'm sitting next to Greg Papa, who at the time was the Warriors TV announcer. And he was also just finishing his first year of doing Oakland A's baseball on television for uh, Sports Channel. So I knew who he was, but I'm sitting there. And uh, we end up talking a little bit, and we're watching the game. And he's like, well, this is going to be great. It doesn't matter. The A's are going to win the World Series. They're going to beat either of these two teams. And I looked at him, and I said, I don't think so. I said, I'm pretty sure, especially if they play the Reds, they're going to lose the World Series, and they're probably going to get swept. And he looks at me, and he's like, you're crazy. You know, this age just won. They're defending champions. They won 103 games. McGuire, Conseco, Stewart, more. How, how could you say this? So I laid it out to him. I said, well, this is why. And then he goes, well, you might have a point. <laughs> okay. <laughs> ah! So uh, as the sad story goes, the A's go to the World Series. They get swept by the Reds. It's horrible. Played terrible. Um, but I see Greg at a Warrior game. Uh, the next month, uh, again, I'm on just this credential, I'm just hanging out, and he looks at me and he goes, you were right, I'm going to put you to work. And through that, the next year with the A's, he made me his uh, stack guy on A's broadcast. So because you met, let's recap this, you randomly met Greg Papa in a bar, you correctly predicted that your favorite team <laughs> would get swept in the World Series by the Cincinnati Reds to the A's play-by-play announcer, and then a month later, he saw you, he remembered you, and he said that I'm going to put you to work. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty amazing, isn't it? So what is the work that he had you do? So he had a stat guy on baseball. Explain uh, what a stat guy is. So a stat guy is during a telecast. He's in the broadcast booth with the broadcasters, and he's on headset with the people, the graphics people in the television truck. So besides relaying information just to the TV truck as far as you know, where base runners are, pinch hitters, pinch runners, or little nuggets, you're also giving notes to the broadcaster that can enhance the broadcast. And what I did um, starting in the early 90, 91 season, before he actually could get me on as a stat guy, I would do like game reports for him. I would put together, type up, again, no computers, had a typewriter, type cursive, though, it was sweet. Um, I would type up these facts and stats that I would pull from either the Elias um, – it was like the Elias book they put out by year. I can't remember the name. Not the how. No, it was an Elias thing. They did little nuggets. Elias annual. So I'd pull stuff from that and update it. Uh, baseball encyclopedias. Just stuff that, that Gray could use during the game. And he showed it to the producer at the time. And uh, the stuff was good. And the stat guy they had wasn't really doing what I could do. And so Greg was able to get me in as his stat guy. And then as we went to the Warrior season... Even though Greg at that time was only doing Warriors radio, um, they got me on as a stat guy for Steve Albert and the Warriors. Initially, before you got on, was Greg paying you out of his pocket, if you don't mind me asking? Were you doing this like free just because you liked the guy and you wanted to in or what? Yeah, I was doing it for free just to get in with him, um, just to, to prove that, hey, I can do this, um, and I'd be, I'd be valuable to you. The first time that you sat 
in a television broadcast booth next to Greg Papa as a game was going on at the Coliseum after all these years of sitting out there in the bleachers. Describe that day. Uh, it was pretty cool. Um, actually, the first time I actually did stats for somebody was for Vince Scully. Really? Yeah, because I had a, f- a friend of a friend who was working on the Dodgers telecast. And he said, we're coming to San Francisco. Vin needs a stat guy. You can do it. I'm like, okay. And I show up, and it's, it's Vin Scully. I mean, I know who Vin Scully is. Um, and to wa- sit in the booth and kind of, you know, you don't really have to give him much information, but watch how he worked as a broadcaster because growing up, that's really what I thought I was going to do. I thought I was going to be a baseball broadcaster. I thought that's, that's, that was my path. And to watch him and how he did things, um, it was eye-opening. And so when I got to be there with Greg um, and watch how he did things and how I could help him, it was really cool. It was cool to be in the press box as it's actually doing something that was valuable for once. What was your biggest eye-opening experience about, oh, this is how television works for a live sporting event that you didn't think about previously? You know what it was? And honestly, it was that this is what people do for a living. Camera guys, camera operators, this was what they did. I figured that these people had real jobs, and then at night when it was time for baseball, they came and they ran the camera. This is how stupid I was. Um, I had no idea this was actually what they did. They got there six hours before the game to set up. Uh, it was an all-day thing to get ready for a game. I had no idea any of that took place. Um, and the other eye-opening thing, eye-opening thing was uh, Greg's partner that year was Reggie Jackson. <laughs> and Mr. October was a different cat. And he, uh, for uh, maybe the first two months, he never said a word to me. He didn't know who I was. He didn't trust me. Nothing. The only time he finally broke the ice is when I knew something about his career that he didn't know. (laughs) Which was? Which was that he was teammates with Mike Heath in 1978 with the Yankees, and and Mike Heath played in that World Series. And Ray's like, no, he didn't. No, Mike Heath never played in the World Series. I was never teammates. And I had baseball encyclopedia with a World Series roster and showed it to him. And then Reggie was like, then I was cool with Reggie. Okay. That's a way of proving yourself. (laughs) How many years did you work as Greg Papa's stat guy? So I was with Greg from mid-91 through the 2003 season, and that was when his last year with the A's. So that's a 12 year run. Yeah. It's a long time. Let's pause from talking about David Feldman, and let's do a Greg Papa appreciation. <laughs> what is it that makes Greg Papa so good? I think his preparation, his, his diving in for information, always put him ahead of the curve. Um, you know, again, I hate to keep saying in the old days before the Internet, I mean, he carried with the baseball encyclopedia. He carried with the media guides. And he would be in his hotel room on road trips, and uh, he, would, he would study, and he would look things up, and he would read everything. Um, his preparation was second to none. And the second thing that put him over the top as a TV announcer is he knew how to work the medium of television. You know, a graphic comes on the screen. He doesn't read the graphic back to you. He tags it with information. He embellishes the information that's there to give you a, a better sense of what that graphic means. And that's why I thought Greg and I always worked really well together because I knew what he knew, he knew, and I knew where he was going. So I could always give him that extra little note or something, especially when I started being more in the truck. I could talk right in his ear. Uh, these were on KICUA's broadcast where I was a graphics coordinator, associate producer. So I could talk in his ear and, and lead him to things or say things to him. 
and it was very simpatico uh, relationship with him as far as baseball information. So I've always thought that Greg Papa is the modern-day Bill King, and Papa learned from Bill King and knows the legacy of Bill King. How much did you work specifically with Bill or just being around him? What are some of your biggest takeaways from Bill King? You know, again, Bill, similar in his preparation. Bill had the big, huge binder that he carried around that had notes on everything, and most of it handwritten. He would cut some newspaper articles out, like where Greg would (laughs) – Greg was ridiculous. He would, like, spend the day with the newspapers and cut little things out all day long, and then when he got to the game, he would then start taping them onto cards in his little file of facts file system that he used to call games, where Bill had this big binder and just had notes on everybody, um, and he would be able to flip to the right guy and tell you something about him. Bill was a little more stat-oriented on baseball than Greg was. Greg definitely did more stories, and I think television allows you for that, where Bill would, would get into the numbers. But Bill was his way with words... His way of painting a story, second to none. I mean, he loved the language. And, I, and I, you know, now when we talk to young broadcasters or young students, we always try and emphasize the language. Words and the use of words puts you so far ahead of everybody else, if you can do that. And Bill was a master at it. The other thing that stands out in my mind about the best broadcasters is that the biggest moment of the game or the biggest moment of the season, they're at their best. Whether it's... Papa with touchdown Raiders. I'm not going to try and do it uh, the way that Bill or that Greg would. But at the dynamic moment of the season, whether it's the Scott Hatterberg home run for 20 consecutive victories or whatever the case might be, that they're at their best when the game is at its best. Yeah, exactly. And you know what's so interesting about the Scott Hatterberg home run? Bill's most famous saying is, Holy Toledo. He did not say it during the Scott Hatterberg. Did he forget? It just because that was, it was natural. It wasn't a gimmick to him. And that proves it. It wasn't something that he was always going to say. Um, it was just a natural reaction to things. And Greg ha- has that, too, with big moments. If you listen, again, in the streak, when Zahada has the walk-off, you know, listen to those calls, they're magical because they're just reacting to what they see. And that's what makes broadcasters of that level so good. Like you said, they, they're in the big moments. They shine. They, they don't try and take over the spotlight. They just try and be a part of it. So you mentioned how you start to work in the truck now. Explain your evolution from the guy who's just passing notes to Papa in the booth to a guy who's in the truck and starting to take on more responsibilities. So in 1993, the A's broadcast rights went to KRON, Channel 4. And, and again, talk about full circle. Remember I told you I did the stats for uh, Vince Scully? So the, at the time, the director and the graphics operator – uh, was Mark Wolfson and Mark Rita were their names. And they ended up getting the A's job at Carol N to produce A's baseball. And through another friend of mine and reminded, hey, this guy knows more about the A's than anybody. And I showed up to this interview wearing an A's tie and uh, talking to them. And this was like, this was the dream job. I travel with the A's. I go on the road with them. Um, this was unbelievable. And Lucky, again, very lucky, they, they picked me, and I got to travel, and I was started as just the graphics coordinator, which is the person who's doing the research and putting the graphics together. And the next year, unfortunately, they let uh, the producer go, uh, Mark Rita. So Mark Wolfson was still there as sort of the producer-director combo, but so he, let, he leaned on me for all the like, tape packages and, and flashbacks and graphics, and I really got to take control of those A's broadcasts. 
first years we had Dick Stockton as our announcer. Um, Dick was the first year was great because he needed the gig. He just lost CBS Baseball, and he so he cared. And then he got Fox Football. He didn't care about us anymore. <laughs> um, so that was a joke. And then the A's hired Ken Wilson. Now here's a guy that played did three years of A's baseball, and I don't think there's more than a handful of people who even remember who he was. I barely remember him, and I was in theory watching at the time. Yeah, I mean there's it was so non. I'm sorry, Ken. He was a he was a hockey announcer for the St. Louis Blues. His saying uh, was "Oh baby, um, okay." And then when we'd be on the road, if we weren't televising that night, instead of going to the game, he would go to a minor league ballpark. He was a hardcore baseball fan. He wanted to own a minor league team, and he wanted to do research on minor league baseball. And he would go to minor league. Cities. So he would go to Stockton or Modesto, or yeah, or if we're on the road. And somewhere in Chicago, he'd drive up to some other city somewhere not too far by. Did he ever buy a team? I think he did, actually. I think he did have a part of one at some point somewhere. But he wasn't servicing the A's fans by knowing what his own team was doing because he was never at the games. He wasn't working. So finally, when the A's moved their over-the-air TV to KICU, uh, they hired Greg. Greg did both the, at the time, Fox Sports Bay Area and the over-the-air, and did all the games, and really served the A's fans well, especially as the A's got good in the early 2000s. All right, so I'm going to pause for a moment here about sort of, because um, I want to go a little bit back on your path. So for an on-air person, uh, you go to college, you do this internship, you work at your campus radio station, you get this gig and this gig, and you kind of have you know somewhat of a straight path. And But for people who want to work behind the scenes, they don't normally just meet someone at a bar and make a correct <laughs> prediction, and then that leads to this and leads to that. What, what is the more standard route for someone who ends up working as a producer on live television? Well, a lot of people uh, in the industry, they, they start out, they go to college, and they you know, go to broadcasting and television majors, and they get some hands-on work at different universities who have different um, facilities that you can work on. Uh, as then you move into what we call board shows, which is the scoreboards at the different stadiums and arenas. Uh, they need uh, crew members, so you end up kind of working in that. And you'll find a skill or a discipline, whether you're going to be a camera person or a tape operator or work in audio, you kind of find your skill. Um, and those are kind of the, they call those the under-the-line under, under the line positions, crew type, where the producing type kind of go into graphics or sometimes as tape operators. So you're more in the storytelling than the documenting. Um, and you just kind of do the gigs, and hopefully you do a good job, and someone gives you the next opportunity. Um, I started, again, graphics operating. Uh, I did the Giants for a season in 1992, making $75 a game, which is ridiculous. Um, but I got the experience of doing it. I got to go to games. Um, you know, I ended up getting the KSU gig. I ended up, somebody with the Giants liked me enough that when Fox Baseball got the the national broadcasting contract. I was selected to do stats on their national shows. I ended up doing stats for Chris Berman, uh, VSPN for ESPN playoffs. So a lot of it is getting the opportunities, being pretty good, being a good person and people liking you to get the next opportunity and them recommending you to go on. I mean, the old adage, you know, it's, it's who, you know, I think in every industry it pays, it plays off big. And then as you continue to evolve in your career, you start delving into other sports. Describe the first time that you produced a sport and you had very little knowledge of said sport. Uh, I can give you a great example. Uh, a few years ago, I, I was now producing for Pac-12 Network, 
And uh, so, you know, we do the standard volleyball, soccer, football, basketball, seven collegiate sports. Then I say you're going you're gonna to get to produce acrobatics and tumbling. Acrobatics and tumbling. I'm like, okay, yeah, I'm into it. Let's do it. No idea what this thing is. Nobody has never been televised before. Okay. So there was not even anything to go off of. Uh, only 14, at the time, only 14 universities had acrobatics and tumbling, which is not gymnastics and it's not cheerleading. You can't say those two words around those people. They get very upset. But it is a very, uh, it, I hate to say it, it has come from the gymnastics world. But it's a team sport, and they do routines, and they do lifts, and they do pyramids, and they do tumbling. Uh, but no one had ever televised it, and we're going to televise it. Well, at least there's no, no one can say you did it all wrong right. because it's never been done before. We're going to set the bar. Uh, my announcer is J.B. Long, who you know, who's the uh, play-by-play voice of the Los Angeles Rams, was selected as the play-by-play announcer, having no idea. Uh, Samantha Presick, who was a gymnast who was an uh, Olympian, she gets selected as well. So we're going to go into this blind. but And I think you do this with sports you don't know. You just kind of find out the format. How, how, how's it work? What can you tell the viewer? My way of producing almost every event I do is I do it for the viewer. What does the viewer want to see? And what can I teach the viewer um, that's going to enhance his watching experience? Right? Because I'm that guy. I watch the TV on, sports on TV, and I, will, I want to be that guy. So I think, I think like him. And so we kind of just took it very simply. And then as we're actually doing the event and we're seeing how it goes and we're reacting to it, it was cool because it was all natural. We had no preconceived notions of what was going to happen. Uh, we knew how the scoring worked. We knew kind of the timing of each event, but we get to this last thing, which is the team event, and these girls have 28 members on a team, and for the team event, all 28 of them are out on this mat. There's music playing. They're tumbling. There's people getting thrown in the air. It, it's the Wild West. We don't even know where we're shooting. We're just shooting it, and our eyes are wide, and JB doesn't know what to say, and it was, it was awesome because we had no idea what we were doing. Was this live or was this tape? Oh, this was live. Did you know how long it was going to last? We had no idea. We had no idea. We kind of again, we kind of knew the timing and the and how the scoring sort of works. And any any sport, I say that in quotes because no real sport has judges. That's an activity. But uh, we just kind of followed along, and, it, and it was, our eyes were just we were blown away because twenty eight female athletes going crazy on the mat, doing these unbelievable athletic things, and it was. Uh, it was a great eye-opening experience. I've now done it three times. I've done acro and tumbling. I'm JB and I and Sam. We're the uh, you're the experts. We're the experts. We're the voice if this of ever becomes an Olympic sport and you three are not involved with it, I'm going to call shenanigans. I, I agree. I'd be very upset about this. Uh, they're now up to I think 25 universities have acro and tumbling, so it's growing. Describe your most chaotic week from the standpoint of different sports and different roles that you did as part of those broadcasts. Yeah, I, I've had a week before where I, I've done four different sports in four different cities in different roles where I'll do, um, if I remember this right, there was an A's baseball playoff game where I was the official scorer. Uh, the next night I was in Tucson, Arizona to produce a soccer event. Um, then I was back in Oakland to do a Warriors game as stats. And I think the next day, I think I went back, I think I went to Washington to produce a volleyball match. So it was, yeah, it was four different sports, four different days, four different cities, four, well, three different jobs. What is your 
method for keeping it all straight in your mind and in your notes and all that? Yeah, it's I'm not great at it. Um, I know I'm when I work on a format as a producer, right? So as a producer of a show, uh, beforehand you're working with the announcers and you're deciding what stories you want to tell and what graphics you want to have and what what video packages you want to put together. So if I have a college football game, I'm spending Monday, because the games are all done now, all the stats are updated, finding, figuring out what stories I want to tell, what graphics, what videos. But if I have a week where I'm also doing a soccer and a volleyball, much like this week, I have to do the same thing for those sports. And it's trying to keep all that, the show formats correct. And then the next level is sponsors, right, the money that you have to get into a show, get keeping that, contacting everybody, contacting the schools, contacting the announcers, uh, and I just try and keep it straight. And uh, I know trying to keep focused, not to get distracted, but there's always something about another game and this and that. Um, I'm not as good at it as I think other people are. All right, I'm going to change focus a little bit. I want to get your advice for up-and-coming play-by-play announcers. So I think that you are a wealth of knowledge. I've always respected your, your work greatly and your opinion, but because of the different roles that you filled and because you watch sports endlessly, it makes you very good. And I know that one of the things that I've learned from you is it's not just what you say, but it's how you say it. So I'm going to break down up-and-coming announcers into three categories. All right. The first one is someone who is in high school, toward the end of high school, or in college, and they think they want to do this. They're just getting started. The second category is someone who is just out of college, and they're looking for that first full-time job in the, in the lower minor leagues or maybe with a, with a college where they're doing the women's basketball and sort of they're not quite doing football and men's basketball yet, but they're kind of getting that first job. And then the third category would be someone like me who's had a little bit of national, a little bit of regional, a lot of local. I'm a AAA. So let's go one by one. Let's start with the bottom level. Uh, high school and college, what would be your advice to them? Them is to, is to get reps, and reps meaning calling games. Now, you might not have a actual platform to call games, but nothing's stopping you from sitting out in the stands with a tape recorder and calling the game. You could go to this park that we're sitting at. You can go to this park and call a softball game or call a Little League baseball game. It's just getting into the rhythm of talking to microphone um, and calling the game. Another thing that not enough people do is, at that age especially, is listen to other broadcasters. When you're at home and you're listening to a game, really concentrate on how that broadcaster is calling the game to get ideas of what you should do. I'm not saying copying them. Not at all. But learn the mechanics of being a broadcaster, how they get to break, how they come back to break, how they you know, sag into another story, or, or we talked about it with Greg, like tagging a graphic, how they do that, or how you would like to do that. Um, so watch those events and go to games and just have a tape recorder. And, you know, there's so many major league announcers, and they all have the same story. I used to sit in the stands. John Miller, Hall of Fame broadcaster, used to sit in the stands at the Coliseum and call the game. Ken Korak, used to sit in the stands, call the game. There's nothing wrong with it. You might bug a few people. So what? you got to work on your craft. And, and to me, getting into that rhythm of talking into a microphone and now, with the Internet and podcast and everything else, you can actually put this stuff online and have people listen to it as well and get feedback pretty easily. Before we get to Category 2, I want to – so both of us are old enough that we grew up listening on radio and also watching on television. It was before every game was on television. Now, as much as I hate to admit this, since I work in radio, you know, so much of it is about your online presence as well. So what is your advice about learning the mechanics of radio and TV? Yeah, I think you need to re- – you need to learn both. The odds are 
your first broadcasting job is going to be radio or a you know a non an audio only on the audio, online right or yeah if there's video it's just it's not something that's you're being controlled it's just a stream of one camera of something so you need to learn the mechanics of that television again it's watching other broadcasters so you might not get the actual experience but learn what they do i think learning radio and learning to be your own producer in your head like a radio announcer is is huge because then you're your own guy, your own boss, and you're setting the tone of the broadcast. Um, but you do need to learn the mechanics of television, and there are things that are, are separate. Uh, you know, once you get to television, you're going to have somebody talking in your ear. You're going to have people telling you where to go, and um, that's a whole different world. My favorite is working with an analyst. Uh, I think it was Jim Herrick. And uh, I, I did this basketball tournament with him. And by the end, he was so tired of four games every day. And he just gave up on learning people's names. He just <laughs> called everybody coach. And then any time that somebody would say something in his ear, the producer, he would say, okay, <laughs> on the air. I love <laughs> Not in the talkback yeah. position. They yeah. would just say, okay. I love getting the answer on the air. I let, every once in a while, you know, because I'll make somebody laugh. And I make them laugh on air. That's like the greatest thing ever. Like, what are they laughing at? <laughs> All right, so category number two is someone who has finished college. They have a little bit of experience, and they're looking for their first – they're looking for their break, their first full-time job. It's apply for everything and take everything, um, especially right then. You are in a, in a big sea with a lot of people, um, and, again, you need the experience to be on the air, getting paid for it, working professionally, learning that world, because that's a whole different world too. I'm sure as you went through, when you, when you first become – as a newspaper writer, right, it's a, it's a company that you're working for now, and there are rules, there's regulations. That's a whole different thing. You need to learn that professionalism, and taking any job at any level, I say, is a good thing. Now, I know a lot of people say, well, what if I get stuck there? You know what? If you get stuck there, you might not have been good enough to go to the next level if you get stuck in Podunk, Oklahoma, doing a midnight to six shift on the radio. But you need that experience, and you're so young. At this age, and I know it doesn't feel like it for, for kids who are 22 or 23 just out of college because they think they've got to get their career started right now and they've got to be ready. But you are so young, you can do so many different things, and you didn't lose any time. You're, don't be in a rush. You know what I mean? I just, and don't be afraid, and I know this is something now with millennials that they talk about, but don't be afraid to fail. It's okay. It's not the end of the world. You're not going to curl up in a ball and go away. If you have a job and it doesn't work out and, and they don't ask you back, that's okay. You'll go to the next job. Uh, too many times, and we see it talking to kids in colleges around uh, the Pac-12, they're so afraid of failure. And I don't know if it's the everybody gets a ribbon generation, and that's part of it. They never experience failure because even if they're terrible, they say, great job. Um, but you got to learn that. you got to learn it's okay to fail. All right, and then the third category would be those who are – those who have been in the industry for a while, they're at AA, they're at AAA, maybe they're at a, uh, you know, they're at a Mountain West Conference school doing football or men's basketball, uh, you know, and, and they want that NFL gig, they want the Major League Baseball gig, um, and I think you used the word patience, uh, which is probably the hardest skill to attain when you're so close to where you ultimately want to be. What would be your advice to that category? Yeah, that's, it's hard because now you're talking, you're going for the top jobs, right? And there's not that many of them. There's more now than there used to be which is good, but there's also more people coveting those jobs. Um, and it's just hustling at this point. It's meeting people. It's talking to people. It's being persistent yet not annoying, which is a really hard line. Because um, if you've had this job and you're a minor league baseball announcer or you've done some college basketball, you're probably pretty good at this point. You're, you're good enough to do anything. Um, it's the next step is that people skills um, 
and just getting your stuff out there even more, I, I think it'd be really hard to be honest with you. Um, and again, you have to be acceptable of rejection because it's going to come, but keep a positive attitude, attitude and talk to people and just keep, keep going for it. Uh, you don't in a talent based industry, where it's really personal preference plays a big role into it. Who's doing the hiring and do they like you? Because you could be the greatest announcer in the world, but if this guy's ear doesn't hear that, he's not going to hire you. But the next guy might. So you just got to keep going. It's, it's hard, but persistence and patience. Let me get your advice on a few other broadcasting topics. Let's say you have an analyst who doesn't shut up in time before the play is about to start in football or talks over your call at a big moment, says touchdown before the play-by-play announcer yeah. does, for example. Uh, what is your advice on how to rectify that problem? Uh, depending on the relationship you have with that person. If you are, you know, you're friendly, you kind of know each other, it's really the after the game, let's get a beer and play it for them. Let them hear it. Hear what you're hearing um, so they know not to do that. Um, because some guys do it without even realizing that they're doing it. Um, and stepping on a call. But to do that, you have to have a good enough relationship, and you have to trust in each other. What if you're just getting to know that person? You've been thrust into this role. You just met each other for the first time. It, the tat to me, and I don't know if this is right or wrong, but it's right away telling them, hey, what a big moment. You've you got to let me finish the call. Um, again, because you're still just feeling each other out. Um, and you can also turn it back to them. It's like, you know, as soon as the call's over, I'm coming to you. I'm going to get your take on it. But... Let me finish the call. And it would really be, to me, doing it right away. Because I know in the truck, when I'm working with a director that maybe I don't know that much, and he's doing something that I don't like, I will say it right away to him. Say, hey, we can't do that. Or wait for me. Or something. So now, in the moment, it's in his head. And hopefully the next time in that game, he realizes that and won't do it. That reminds me of something I was going to ask you earlier about the dynamics in the truck. Uh, Let's put the different jobs in the truck in the terms of baseball. Is the producer the general manager and the director is the manager? Yeah, that's a, that's a pretty good way to put or it. Or what are the other different roles in the truck and how they would relate to, to sports? I, I've, I've heard some people say, like, the producer's the architect and the director's the builder. Um, one's the navigator, one's the actual driver. Um, but in the good shows, the producer and director work together to tell the story. The director's the one who's actually calling the cameras that you're seeing on TV. They're saying, you know, they're doing the... Take two, take three, um, where the producer is talking a little bit more to the announcers and calling the replays that you see and the timing of the replays. Um, but the director is ultimately responsible for what's happening on air live because he's calling it. Um, so you have to have a good relationship. Um, and there are some producers and directors who do not get along, and it shows in the show because the show is choppy and it's not entertaining to watch. But when you're simpatico and you're all going in the same direction and you're you know it's a good show, and it's a good game, and a good game has a lot to do with the, with the television show, is when people in the truck react to the game. Because that means everybody's into it, and they're all reacting to what's happening, and we're all fans at that moment, and that's the best time. And if everybody's getting along in the truck, the graphics, the tape people, the audio people, and they're all into the game, it makes for magic. What's the, your best advice for play, play, play-by-play announcers to have a good relationship with their producer besides just nod and do whatever the producer tells them to do. Yeah, I, I think sometimes, especially if you have a younger play-by-play guy and an experienced producer, they will do that. They're just, yes, sir, whatever you want. No, it, it's collaborative. Eventually, it's, the words are coming out of your mouth. 
right? So it's really your brand that you're saying. And if there's a story you don't want to tell or the way the producer wants you to, you can say, hey, I, I don't want to do that. Um, but you talk. You communicate. And we are in the communications business, and you got to talk. Now, in the truck, the announcer has a way. It's called the talkback button that they're talking off air right to the producer, and we can hear what they want to do if they want to see something. But you have to stand up for yourself. Um, and I'm the type of producer who, you know, the open of the show is the first five minutes on TV. And it's really the only part of a sports broadcast that we control. Because once the game starts, we're at the game. Um, I like to come up with what we're talking about. It's just, to me, I have a good sense of what we can do, what's capable, and what's interesting to the viewer. But if the broadcaster doesn't want to talk about what I want to talk about, he just needs to tell me. And I'm going to say, fine, let's just change it. Because, again, it's him. It's his voice, his face. He, no one knows who I am. He's the face of the broadcast, and he has to believe in what he's talking about. I'm going to move on to a few other topics. But before I do that, is there anything else that I've neglected to ask you in terms of getting along with the people around you and advice that you would give to different people in this industry? You know, I think it's just it's be kind. Don't take things too personally. In a live sporting event, uh, live television in any way, there's a lot of pressure, right? Because any mistake is right there for everyone to see. And Twitter can destroy you, especially if there's a lot of people watching. Exactly. And it will live on forever and awfulannouncing.com and, and everything else. So there is a lot of pressure, and there's going to be times that uh, you're going to yell, and you're going to get yelled at. Um, but as I've learned early on, it's never personal. It's never like, and I've never yelled at anybody personally. Um, it's, it's always about res respecting them. You're excited in the moment, and there's a lot of pressure, but it's not personal. Um, as long as you're in a TV truck and you're efforting to do your best and to communicate and listen, everyone's going to like you for that. That's how we notice going on the road. Young people who come up in the business, if you're putting the effort in, you're listening, you're being a good person, we're going to like you and we're going to want you around. And I say around is another thing. Hang around. If you're a kid in college and a Pac-12 truck comes up to you and they're doing the game, uh, we're doing a game at Arizona State this coming weekend, and you're there, come to the truck, say hi, hang around. Don't be shy. I've seen more kids get put to work because we need an extra body to do something. Just because you're around, you're a good person, and you, you seem friendly. So for the three people who are in Tempe, Arizona, who are going to be listening to this podcast, <laughs> go stalk the Pac-12 Network's truck and see if you can get put to work this weekend. Exactly. All right, one of the things that you did that we have not discussed yet was working with Robert Buon on the A's post-game call-in show. What are some of your favorite moments of doing that work? So I actually started doing it with Rich Herrera. Oh, yes, years. Rich. I love Rich. Hey, buddy. Here's my partner in crime. Rich, so this was, Rich was, is a radio guy who kept getting radio jobs. And I'm not sure what he's doing now. Last I heard, he was with the Padres. Yeah, he's, a, yeah, he's with the Padres flagship station. Uh, and he, this is another great example of a guy who's just a good guy that people like. Um, because Rich knows the radio business, and he knows how to be good on the air. Um, and he's a good, friendly fella. And he keeps getting gigs because of that. But doing the, the show with him, especially where my baseball knowledge of the A's was probably a little more... Than, than Rich had. And I was kind of nuts and bolts with it. Um, and Rich was the friendly guy. So I came off, and people thought I was like the mean guy on their end. Because people would call, I'm like, no, you don't know what you're talking about. Let me tell you what it is. And Rich was like, oh, it's all right. So it was fun, though. It was fun to, to always talk to callers. The years I did at 98, 99, 
Um, 98, the A's weren't very good. But 99, they started to have the, the roots of what they were going to be with, with Giambi and Tim Hudson came up that year and Chavez came up that year, and you could see what was going to happen. Um, and luckily, as we went on, when Robert Bond finally did get the show, he would at least have me on on Fridays, and we would do stuff. And it was just – I love answering questions um, and trying to come up with an answer and, and inform people. Um, we still – we talk about our bleacher crowd – we still get together every Super Bowl Sunday. Really? Yeah. My mom has held a Super Bowl party at her house now for uh, over 30 years. And it was it was because it was like for us, the Super Bowl was the start of baseball season. So all the bleacher people would come to my mom's house. And that's still the way. They, we still all get together. And they their favorite thing is to ask questions. And when I traveled with the A's, obviously I had a little more insight than I do now. But uh, – it was fun to talk and tell stories and tell people what, what was happening. And that was what the radio show was like. Having spent four years doing a post-game call-in radio show <laughs> as well, uh, I have numerous uh, favorite memories of working both with Ken Levine and Joe Block. And for me, the, the memories that I have that always stand out the most are when there's a rain delay, when there is a power outage, and Charlie Sander and Rick Monday, all right, we're going to send it to Ken and Josh. Like those are actually my favorite moments. I, you know, but it never rains in San Diego. There was one night, it rained. There was three different rain delays, so we had three different times that we took calls. And whether you're taking calls from where people are in their cars or they're at home, or people who are at Petco Park in San Diego and just know by instinct, let's just call in Dodger Talk, and we're just going to listen because that's the only way we can listen at this point is just to call in and listen and ask questions. So the more unique reason that I was on the air would be some of my favorite shows. And then also, anytime it got after midnight, it was Dodger Talk for Lovers. Nice. And that's when I got really, that's when I got really weird. <laughs> you know, it's funny you bring that up. My, my, this, this would be my favorite moment on the air by far. It was Fenway Park in Boston during a rain delay. And, uh, you know, when Bill King would be around at all, it was always intimidating. It was always intimidating to be on the air when Bill's sitting there. It's Bill King. It's my idol growing up. Um, so he's sitting there, and I get on with Robert Bond to help fill this rain delay. And he was saying something about the time about, it was about wild card or winning the division. And I went on this big rant about it's how much more important it is to win the division and be a division champion that has so much more, whatever I was saying. And out of the corner of my eye, I see Bill scrambling to get his headset. And I'm like, Oh crap! What, what did I? What did I say? What's going on? He gets on. He clicks on, and he goes, "Robert, I just need to tell you something. I agree totally with David." And I was just like, "That's it. I'm done. <laughs> Thank you, everybody. Good night." It was. It was unbelievable. It was by far the the coolest moment I ever experienced on the air. Okay, so after all those years of sitting in the left field bleachers and meeting all these great people who you're still in touch with, come now 2000 and you got these fans in the right field bleachers, and it's a different bleachers now because of Mount Davis, and they're banging drums, and it is like a soccer atmosphere out in right field. What emotions did that trigger seeing the way that the right field bleachers kind of transformed? Yeah, it was interesting because the drums started, the drums actually started in left field, believe it or not. Really? Okay. Yeah, and I remember it was during a Padres series, and uh, it was, uh, Jerry Coleman was getting really upset because the drums were bugging him. <laughs> um, I thought, because, again, it wasn't the bleachers anymore. Once Mount Davis was built and they put seats, seat backs up there, and it wasn't, it wasn't the same. But it was fun to see the communities again start. And that's what right field has grown into. And there's a left field community now, too. Um, 
and you see the same thing, the same people at every game and people getting to know each other and traveling and having fun with it. Uh, the drums was a, unique to Oakland, which I think is cool. Uh, I remember, again, the 2000 playoffs, George Steinbrenner wanted them to ban the drums. Uh, come on, George. <laughs> what, are you, what are you doing? Um, you know, in my time, we had Hindu's Bad Boys Club, and we had the, uh, the other Hindu fan club. Hindu Land. Hindu Land. Um, and these groups of these pockets of fans. There was Ricky's Heights. Down the left field line, wasn't something like Henderson's Heights. Henderson's Heights. Henderson's Heights. Um, so it was cool. And then they went with the signs, and they had some artists put together, like actual portraits of players. And it became uh, – it was really cool what was happening out there. And the A's fans – and I always said this, and we felt this a little bit in 88 uh, with the A's, when the A's finally won the division because we had been there and we'd been through it. And those fans who had been there in 97 and 99, when you finally win in 2000 – the experience is like no other. It's so organic, um, and it's so joyful, and there, there was no expectation. Um, a lot of what the A's fans, I think, are feeling this year, um, you come into a season with no expectations, and they put together a great season, and you, if you were there and you saw it grow, you feel a part of it, much more than the bandwagon people because you've been there, and it's a very visceral reaction to it. What was the name of that uh, closer from Australia? Grant Balfour. Thank you. Okay, I forgot about, I forgot his name. So in, I think this was the 2012 playoffs when he comes in and everyone in right field, and it's like they're in a mosh pit, the way that they're just slamming their head back and forth, and that was that was awesome. It was awesome, and they did the same thing with Doolittle on his Metallica song, and they just go nuts. They're giving themselves headaches out there. They didn't care. And it looked great because we had the slow-mo cameras at the time, and the hair would be flying. Yeah, it's just a sense of community and this sense of belonging. And I've always felt that with, with baseball more than the other sports because it's every day, right? Baseball is every day, and it's part of your daily way of life. And you're going and you're hanging out with these people, and whether you worked all day and then you're going to the game and you get to see this extended family of yours. And now you're going through something like winning and being a part of it. There's just nothing like it. Well, you stole one of the questions that I was going to ask you because you already answered it about how you got get together at the Super Bowl. Uh, I want to circle back to... Mike and Jay, have either one of them ever attended a Super Bowl party recently? God, no, I don't think they have. I mean, they were. it was funny with Jay because was, he was a family guy. And we've tried to get together with him outside of a ballpark, and I don't think we ever, we ever were successful because um, he always had his daughters. And then, you know, again, that was what was sad about with the bleachers going away. That whole community for us left. My parents started sitting in the second deck. Um there were some other members that did stay in the bleachers, and they went to right field or they went to center field. Um, but it was really a loss of that community, and that was a loss of the, that friendship um, on a day-to-day basis. So if Jay's the family man and he's with his family, where do we think that Mike is these days? Woo! That is a great question. Where would Mike Kelly be? I almost feel like I want to hire a, a private investigator to find Mike and so that I can have him, A, as a guest on this podcast, <laughs> but also just to say hello and see what he looks like and see how his life turned out. Yeah, it would be really interesting to find out. I, I'd love to find out what happened to him. I have no idea. What is a guy like that who's kind of a, I don't know, kind of a modern-day hippie at the time? Where does he end up? What does he do? I don't know. <sighs> Sigh. <laughs> All right, do you have a few other questions before we wrap up? What was the most difficult decision you had to make as an official scorer? Wow. Um, so I love being an official scorer. It's the only way my name could ever be in the box score. <laughs> um, and we don't get paid a lot. We're the, probably the least paid person in the ballpark. So we do it really for the, the, the love of getting to do it and being a part of it. Um, 
I've been lucky. I've haven't had many horrendous calls. Uh, I've gotten to, to call three no hitters over in San Francisco. I've done a World Series game. I've done playoff games. Um, I think the funniest, maybe at the time now, the funniest call I had to make was in 2007. Mark Ellis going against the Red Sox was a single away from the cycle. So he comes to bat in the eighth inning with a runner. Mark Kotze was a runner on first. And he hits a ground ball shot, killed it to third base and Kevin Euclid. But Euclid fields it cleanly, gets up to his feet, and then makes a horrible throw to second. And Kotze safe. Fielder's choice, E5. They put it on the board, and the whole audience boos. There's 22,000 people in the crowd booing. And somebody turns to me and goes, hey, now you know what Jason Kendall feels like. <laughs> so, so game goes into extra innings. Mark Ellis gets a single, so he gets a cycle. And the A's win on a walk-off homer from Eric Chavez. So after the game, they're talking to Eric Chavez. He had been previously been the only other player to hit for the cycle in the Coliseum. And they asked him, what's it like now to have Mark, Mark Ellis hit for the cycle? And he goes, he should have got the cycle twice. <laughs> Still not sure what that means. He goes, that should have been a hit, and the official, the official scorer should be shot and not asked back. Wow. Were you ever shot? I was not shot. Were, were you asked back? I was asked back. <laughs> Barely. But, see, I know Eric. Now, Eric didn't know I was a scorer. And I, always, I never went up to him. I never asked him. I always wanted to. But I just laughed. I just now laughed. I want to do that myself next time I see Eric. He might be managing the <laughs> Angels next year. Hand. But it was like, come on, man. He got the cycle. You were to walk off homer, and you want the score to be shot? That's not good. But it, it's, it was the right call. It was the right call. And that's the thing. A lot of players and managers and broadcasters don't know the rules and don't know the scoring rules. I will say that nowadays uh, it's what we used to call soft serve. Greg Bell, the former writer, said that soft serve when you make a, a give somebody a hit on what could be an error, um, because now every, every game's on television. Everybody sees every play. It's all in slow motion. Everybody bitches if you give an error. It's almost easier to give a hit. You almost have to give a hit on on anything that's not the most routine of plays. Else, people just go crazy, uh, and it, it's sad because it's it's not what it should be. It, there should be a, a more of a level at the major league level that to make plays, but they complain. All right, let's go back full circle. When was the last time you sat in the bleachers as a fan and watched a game? You know what? The last time I sat in the bleachers, not at the Coliseum, I sat in the bleachers at 2009 ALCS Angels and Yankees. Uh, I took my girlfriend. She's a big Yankee fan, and we went to a playoff game at Angel Stadium and sat in the right field or about the right field fence. Um, I don't sit in the sands that much anymore. Um, obviously, I'm working most games that I'm at, and that, that's a big part of it. The other thing is, and this is going to sound horrible, uh, but you get used to being in press boxes and having room and space and ha- not having people block your view and getting up in front of you. And I don't know, as I've gotten older, I don't handle that as well anymore, being in crowds. I go to events with 50,000 people, but because I'm kind of isolated, I don't feel it. But when I'm out there as... In there as a fan, I do feel it, and I, it gets to me a little bit. When was the last time, if ever, that somebody saw your name and got mad at you for something that you said on TV when it was the other David Feldman or complimented you for something that you did on television? Uh, that happens on Twitter now a lot more than, uh, than it should, where he'll say something or he'll do a story or something and somebody will respond to it. And they're like, 
Come on, Feldy. You don't know what you're talking about. I'm like, what? That <laughs> wasn't, wasn't me. Come on, man. Uh, I, I will tell you this, and hopefully he's not listening. Um, he's listening. Uh, so, Dave, I, I got to tell you something. You did a basketball game for uh, a company back in January, and uh, the check came to me. I'm just saying. Uh, How big was this check? You know, not as big as it should have been, but uh, it was direct deposit. I really had nothing to do with it, but uh, yeah. That's a fantastic way to end this. Thanks so much for joining me. The David Feldman, who you do not see on TV, but gets checks into his direct deposit. This is Life Around the Seams. 